Before the mid-1970s, no one talked about breast cancer. A diagnosis of breast cancer was a shameful secret. That changed when Betty Ford, President Gerald Ford's wife, and Happy Rockefeller, Vice President Nelson Rockefeller's wife, went public with their breast cancer diagnoses. Their frankness and bravery changed everything. Newspaper and magazine articles and TV specials focused on teaching women about breast self-exams. Breast cancer awareness became a national catchphrase. Lance Armstrong provided a similar public moment for testicular cancer. Even so, few people talk about testicular cancer in the public way that breast cancer is now discussed. And it's a cancer that should be talked about often and openly. The average age for the onset of testicular cancer is only 33. It's a cancer that skews toward young men who are the least likely to worry about cancer. So many men tend to ignore the signs. In this episode of Lifespan, Dan Skinner, a professor of health policy and producer and host of the podcast Prognosis Ohio, talks about his experience with testicular cancer and reflects on the culture that avoids recognition and discussion of the illness. Dan's story begins in 2009 when he was 33, the average age for the onset of testicular cancer. I think the first time I realized something was wrong with me uh, was on a long plane ride actually out to Fairbanks, Alaska for a job interview. And, you know, when you sit for that long on an airplane, uh, you have a lot of time to pay attention to your body. All sorts of things become more apparent to you during those kinds of moments. So that was the first time that I really, I knew something was wrong. In fact, on the way back from my time in Fairbanks, I had a layover in Seattle and I, I called my primary care physician from the layover in Seattle and I said, I think I've got to see you. Something's, something's going on. For me, it was those hours I had by myself to realize that there was no other way to interpret the situation that was going on, even though I didn't have any real sense. Testicular cancer is the kind of thing where most most men don't do regular checks. They're not really very well aware of what normal is. Testicles, like many parts of the body, uh, you know, change regularly. But you know, I didn't have enough of a relationship with my testicles to really know what was going on. But my body was telling me all sorts of other things. Dan, can you be a little bit more specific? Like, what was it that alerted you? What 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 physical sensation exactly that made you start to start to worry? I'm being abstract in a way because it's an abstract feeling. It's a feeling of pressure, a feeling of dull pain, a feeling of tightness. Testicular cancer is one of those cancers where you're actually lucky that you're talking about an external organ because it is easier to get a get a handle on it uh, pretty quickly. But still, it was it was it was fairly abstract. And note that Dan has highlighted all the reasons that testicular cancer needs a public champion and a prolonged public health awareness campaign. Today, breast cancer awareness 
is so pervasive that girls often learn how to do self-breast exams in middle school health classes, but there are no comparable avenues for teaching boys how to examine their testicles, even though the average age for the onset of testicular cancer is much younger than for breast cancer. You know, when I did go back to New York, at that time I was living in New York, uh, I, I saw my primary care physician, I believe within a day, which, you know, it's part of the story here is how long do people wait and men and their relationship with healthcare and postponing things. Everybody knows the Lance Armstrong story and Lance waited months and months and months. And, you know, it ended up being a much bigger deal than it would have been at stage one for him. But I'll never forget going into see my primary care physician. And, you know, primary care physicians are wonderful, but he did a, a, an examination on me and he said, I don't really, I don't really feel anything. You know, I don't, I, I don't know. Then he sent me to a urologist and urologists do this kind of thing all the time. I mean, testicular exams and, and basically within five seconds, he said, Oh, yep. It's, it's uh, you know, you, you have, you have a, uh, a tumor. I, I can feel it. It's, it's pretty clear. Most primary care physicians in my life have told me how to do testicular exams, but don't always do testicular exams on patients themselves. The urologist sent Dan for an ultrasound to confirm the diagnosis, and the tumor was malignant, as testicular tumors usually are. After receiving the news, Dan called the urologist to ask a question that every patient should ask when they receive a diagnosis and a recommendation for treatment. And I said, so suppose I don't, you know, get this surgery. Suppose I just wait or see what's going to happen. He said, you're dead in a year. And I said, I'll see you on Tuesday. It's a really important question to ask because everything has side effects, any kind of surgery, any kind of medication. So it's, uh, yeah, to remind the doctor to, to weigh the risks with the benefits. Now, your answer was really stark. The reply you got was pretty clear cut, but it isn't always so clear cut. Yeah, and it was actually quite humorous. I mean, th this was a funny guy. And, and that was the other thing is the physicians I talked with throughout this process, like they, they were just very personable and, and that really helped a lot. I mean, I was, you know, I mean, I was a man. I wasn't, I wasn't a young child or anything, but like they, they sort of, they knew to keep things a little bit light and also serious and, you know, in, in, in ways that could help me to realize the gravity of the situation, but also to um, help me through it without giving me false hope. I asked Dan to reflect on gender a bit because I couldn't imagine any physician joking with a woman about being dead from breast cancer in a year. I mean, I can only assume because, you know, I was, I was happy with the quality of care I got. And, and these were people who cared a lot about me and who were very serious about their, their jobs. Um, I can only assume that it was me who set this tone because I am a joking person. I'm sarcastic. This is how I survive, right? To me, I, I had to keep humor intact throughout this, you know, and, and in a way that's just kind of how my life is. So I think I gave license for that kind of a response. And that, you know, clearly he knew he was talking to somebody who, um, you know, I was in a PhD program at the time. I was thinking a lot about health and healthcare and medical humanities. So I think that probably those cues were on my part, this was a person who was pretty sensitive to the different position of his patients. He told me at one point, for example, that a certain percentage of his patients get a cancer diagnosis and he never hears from them ever again. 
they're just so scared that they disappear. There's no follow-up appointments. Um, so, you know, he, I think he was very clear about trying to create some connection point. And uh, sometimes um, that kind of dark humor can do that with certain people. But it's one of the things I tell, you know, our medical students, you, you, you have to be really careful with humor, but also you have to learn over time how to really suss out who this patient is. And the ability to get that right is really important. You don't, you don't ever make a joke in an inappropriate moment. You don't ever use humor where it's not appro appropriate, but sometimes it can be really effective. And the, and the best physicians, they have their comedic timing and their, their, um, their, their ability to uh, analyze that situation intact. The urologist scheduled surgery for three days later. These particular physicians were really fast acting. They, they, it was very clear what was going on, and they didn't want to wait any longer than, than they had to. But Dan's cancer was treated 12 years ago, and medical protocols for cancer change constantly. The cancer care guidelines get updated pretty fast, pretty regularly. So much so that every time I go to see my oncologist, they have to kind of start from scratch and see what the best, you know, the most recent recommendations are. Testicular cancer is highly, highly treatable, one of the most treatable cancers out there. And I worry that that discourse will also feed into some people's minds uh, in terms of getting them to not take it that seriously. Oh, it doesn't matter if I wait a couple months. But that's exactly the problem is that just because something's treatable doesn't mean that um, it's it's advisable to wait. It's also really worth you know going back to and dwelling on for a minute that your primary care physician versus the urologist. Even if your primary care physician had been doing regular testicular exams, he does, sounds like he would not have caught that tumor. He would not have felt it. Primary care physicians just aren't used to seeing serious pathologies, and often they don't catch them. Um, which is a very disconcerting thought because you think that regular physical exams have you covered, especially when you're young. It's true that also, like many diseases, uh, the average physician just will not have had uh, the opportunity to have encountered the disease. I think back to the the old uh, show Doogie Hauser. You may remember that, and there was the, one of the first episodes where he misses a, a measles diagnosis because there just wasn't much measles around, so he didn't know what to look for. Yeah, exactly. So you've seen the urologist. They mm -hmm. want to move on this quickly. It was actually my primary care physician who called me um, with the news, and he did one of these, to me, very annoying, dramatic, are you sitting down? You know, and I'm like, just just tell me like what's going on. You know, that was like a Thursday or Friday. I think surgery was a Monday or a Tuesday. So a couple of days later. So I had a, an orchiectomy, which is a removal of one testicle. And it was all pretty straightforward. I'd never had surgery before in my life. So to me, this was all new and all very dramatic. And of course, talking about your testicles to your family and your friends is also a different kind of thing. Although many people learn this when they go through kind of any health condition that your body becomes something of a, a public point of discussion, even though people are trying to be respectful the best they can and all of that. I didn't really care that much. To me, it was more just about taking care of this. I was teaching at Hunter College at the time, and Hunter has a fabulous nursing program. And I, I came out of surgery. And when I woke up, uh, one of my students who was a nurse 
was right there. You know, it was a very awkward moment, you know? <laughs> so and those kinds of things to me just humanized the whole experience for me. And I tried to keep my sense of humor about throughout it. At the same time, the surgery was quote unquote successful. But one of the things that I've struggled with and many people struggle with is what, what does that mean? Um, you know, because we talk in terms of the probability of there being metastatic uh, cancer um, of something in the lymph nodes, you know, they do CT scans. And even then you want to know, well, is it gone? So after the surgery, um, you know, that's when sets of conversations have to happen about what next. After the surgery, Dan was given high dose opioids. I was given a 99 or 90 something pill um, painkiller, opioid painkiller prescription at the time. And it's really interesting because, you know, since we're talking about things in a very direct way, I mean, you know, from a very basic perspective, these pills are so constipating that it's almost the last thing you want after a surgery, especially a surgery down there, right? So I, I, I think back to just how I was right in that moment of massive overprescription of pain medication. Um, and I, I, that, that stuck with me over the years that I've done work on, on pain management and thinking about the opioid crisis and being here in Ohio as well. As Dan notes, since his surgery, the U.S. has experienced an opioid crisis, and Dan's interest in the crisis led him to co-edit a book on the opioid epidemic in Ohio, where the crisis has been particularly serious, and the research he did for the book put the aftermath of his surgery in a new light. You know, I don't think that these physicians were doing anything, um, you know, harmful intentionally. But there was just a culture of you're leaving after a major surgery. Here's your here's your goodie bag. After the surgery, Dan faced treatment decisions. In a case like mine, with a very curable stage one cancer, doing nothing else is is an option, and that's a very hard thing to understand. Actually, I, I kind of assumed there would be a little bit more of a playbook for this. But it turns out that there isn't. My physician at the time told me that the playbook's going to be different for different people. I have these conversations with my physicians whenever I can to learn a little bit about the broader context. That some patients, the degree to which they're scared may keep them from doing any of the follow-up work. So in those cases, he said some of those patients prefer something like a round of chemotherapy to watchful waiting because it gives them a bit a higher degree of certainty. Of course, these are not good trade-offs. Nobody should do unnecessary chemotherapy or radiation or anything ever. But he definitely distinguished and, and tried to tell what is this patient's commitment or their ability to, to do all the follow-up work. And in this case, at the beginning of treatment like this, at a minimum, you had to go for quarterly uh, CT scans to see what was happening in your body. And if you're not going to do those CT scans, you just don't know what's happening in your body. You can't catch any kind of uh, metastasis. In my case, I opted for one round of carboplatin uh, chemotherapy, and I didn't quite know why. The language they used with me wasn't very helpful, to be honest. They said, well, again, this is Vegas here, right? You're playing odds. 
There was no evidence of any cancer in any of my lymphs. But this one round of chemotherapy was recommended as one of the routes by all the you know clinical authorities at the time as a way to really be sure. But even then, you know, you do that one round and then you'd get these CT scans back saying no evidence of metastasis, no visible evidence, I think was the exact language. And I'm thinking, well, what the hell does that mean? And, and, and I will say it's one of the reasons why one of the things I sought out during my first couple of years of treatment was a therapist who had oncological training and talking to somebody who could just help me calibrate myself to these totally you know, obscure test results to say, well, what does this really mean? What does this mean for me? Am I really out of the woods? People use language like out of the woods or cure or these kinds of things. And it's just not very helpful sometimes to, to cancer patients. I've found that the language of oncology often um, hides things from patients. I mean, just the terminology used before surgery was successful. So what does that really mean? They had no knowledge at that point whether or not the cancer had metastasized, but the fact that the surgery was successful was referring to a very specific act. And yet patients could interpret that as it's gone, done, don't have to think about it anymore. So much of that language really covers up and, and stymies questions even. Yeah. And when I say that this language of you know no visible evidence of metastasis and this guy's when I say that this is not helpful, in a way I appreciate that non-helpful language because it's at least it's a bit more scientifically rigorous. Like we we don't see anything, but we can only see what we can see, and sometimes there are things that we don't catch on CT scans. Now, like if if what you're looking for is for somebody to say everything's fine, you can go home, then you're also kind of asking to be lied to in a little bit. What I realized is, well, the CT scans and the follow-up treatment, it, it is what it is, but also having a therapist who could help me to control my own emotional situation around that. No, exactly right. And even the no visible evidence. Um, so many people wouldn't hear that word visible. They would just hear no evidence. Mm -hmm. And you know, anyone who knows a little bit about cancer it takes billions of cells, not just millions, before a, a tumor can be evident on all the scans that we count on to show us the evidence. Yeah, and it's very easy not to hear all the wording or understand the meaning of all the wording. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of cultural dimensions to it, and language is really key, and we are still so far from understanding how to do this right. Even though I think we are actually much further than we used to be, physicians and other health professionals want to use clinical language to be precise, but also there's a kind of authority that comes from it. That's not the lived experience that patients are going to have. So you opted for the one round of carboplatin. Mm -hmm. And what happened at that point? Well, I will say, I mean, before you do chemotherapy, you know, there are some decisions to be made. So, you know, a 33-year-old without children at the time, but, you know, thinking about it, one of the obvious questions is uh, about sperm banking because chemotherapy can be, I mean, it's, it's absolutely like just devastating to the body in, in a number of ways. But one of the things that it can do is lead to infertility. So I did opt to, to do some sperm banking and that was really an amazing experience. You know, again, I was 33. So like I had context, I could talk about sexuality, I could talk about reproduction. 
in these in, in these kinds of things in ways that you know um, somebody much younger couldn't. Um, but it was also this just incredibly weird culture around it. You know, uh, in the United States, we fetishize having children in various ways. Now, in this case, so you know, you, you go to the sperm bank, and it's such a weird place. I mean, it's like you know, I'm trying. I'm trying to find the right words for it, but it's obviously a clinical space. But it's like totally not a clinical space, too, right? This is a place where people go to deposit sperm, right? And even I'm using very clinical language here, right? And, you know, I remember sitting in the waiting room there and, um, you know, and there were kids who are 14, 15 years old. And I thought, wow, that's a whole different ballgame. They're there with their parents, you know. Um, I, I just can't really imagine what all those conversations are. I since have been lucky enough over the years to counsel some kids, not you know, usually young adults more than kids, who their parents say, oh, yeah, there's somebody you might want to talk to, and then I'm, I'm happy to have conversations with them. But even that, there's just it's just a totally different thing imagining, you know, your fertility at age 17 than it is 33. Um, and then you go to this place, and you know, you like you leave your sperm there and then they ship it off to some bank somewhere. I remember getting a note saying like it's been relocated to California at one point. Um, there's a whole insurance part around this. The insurance is not covering this stuff. So you're going out of pocket for yearly, at least you were at the time, at least with my insurance at the time, um, going out of pocket to pay for this, um, a preservation fee or something like this. And, you know, you just like, how many years do you want to pay? For? It's just one added expense that kind of, gets lumped on to all the others um, that's very particular to this disease. The other um, thing I wanted to mention that a decision that uh, many men are confronted with, and this is actually before surgery, is the question of whether to get a prosthetic testicle or not. And that was not something I ever thought seriously about it. To me, it just seemed like, you know, I, it, it wasn't something I was interested in at all. But I did talk with my physicians about it and learned that this is a, actually a big decision for many men um, that they decide before they get their, their orchiectomy. Now, that, that to me is incredibly interesting. It wouldn't have occurred to me that there was such a thing as a testicular prosthesis. With breasts, you can kind of understand because you can tell through clothing that either a breast or more than one breast is missing, but testicles are still hidden. I realize that they're they're visible when you have no clothes on, but they're yeah. still hidden from the world. So that is fascinating. I talked to some other men and said, "Oh no, I would definitely do that." And I was just like, you know, to, to me that that seemed weird personally, something that I just wasn't important to me. But you know, you do realize, and this is a whole part of having testicular cancer that is just you, you can't avoid. I mean, testicles, balls, they're everywhere in our culture. I mean, at the time, Jon Stewart was still on TV. And I remember for the first time noticing how often Jon Stewart would make balls jokes. Once you get this lens, you start to hear it again and again. It's linked up with, you know, you don't have balls. Your, your masculinity is being challenged. And you, you see it in popular media everywhere, movies, television. Um, it's it's just part of our culture. And when you are down a ball, when you when you have an orchiectomy, you become this interesting person within these conversations. 
of, you know, like I remember just a funny story, you know, shortly thereafter I was at a hockey game in, in New York and I was wearing my Columbus Blue Jackets jersey and I was in the bathroom at Madison Square Garden and this guy comes up to me and goes, you got a lot of balls wearing that jersey around here. And I just kind of like said to him, well, actually I'm a testicular cancer survivor and I only have one ball, but this, you know, and, and just the look on his face is, oh, bro, I'm so sorry. I'm like, no, no, it's fine. I'm just, I'm just kind of making a joke, but like, it's also true. So, yeah. you know, as you were talking, I started writing down and actually only two came to me instantly, but things like grow a pair, uh-huh. he has no balls. I mean, you're so right. That phraseology is so common, certainly in the United States. Um, and everyone knows what it means. And even, you know, women use the language, men use the language, children use the language. It's an absolutely central part of our culture. And, you know, I don't think that's a good thing um, because it's it's also part of a, a, an ultra masculinist culture. So, like, you know, I've, I've learned that there is kind of leadership in talking about not having two balls because just that fact challenges so many of our presuppositions about manhood, you know. And, and there's also these kind of funny things like, you know, I do have a child now and, and everything worked out fine for me. And I didn't need that, that, that banked sperm for those who are wondering how it all ends. And then I got out of the yearly subscription fee. I was no longer a member of the, um, the cryogenic, uh, you know, club. But, you know, uh, y- you learn things like, so for example, when you're down one testicle, your, your remaining testicle tends to increase its, uh, productivity by like 25% or something like that. Like there's all this stuff around it. So that opens up other doors for, for being, you know, humorous and, and lighthearted about a serious situation. I asked Dan to talk about health insurance coverage. At the time of his diagnosis, he was teaching full-time at the college level, but as adjunct faculty, which is a notoriously low-paid, unstable position, customarily with no benefits. And just a year or two before, uh, we had been involved in union negotiations to bring the adjuncts into the health insurance ranks. Um, And that was a successful negotiation. Um, So, you know, just a year or so before my diagnosis, um, I got health insurance for the first time in in many years. Um, And it was really close. I don't know how this would have gone if the union hadn't reached out for adjuncts if they hadn't stood up to, to, to cover them as well. And I was teaching four classes a semester. I mean, this was a full-time adjuncting gig essentially while I was in grad school, even though I'm not a big anniversary celebration acknowledgement person. But with this, I think this is political, which is I always write to my union and thank them and always put out something on social media, just reminding people that, you know, when unions fight for healthcare, when you cover people who are in these contingent occupations, um, it really, really makes a big difference for people. After his surgery and initial treatment, Dan accepted a job at Capital University in Columbus, Ohio. The job came with health insurance. The employer healthcare I, I, I got at Capital um, had to insure everybody. There was no medical exam or medical history required to get insurance through an employer plan, luckily. And I remember thinking, God, you know, if they knew how much I was going to cost them immediately, because this was probably, I think this was nine months after my diagnosis, I was still in the most expensive part of treatment at the time. But we're talking March 2009, and that may be a meaningful 
month to some people who know their healthcare history because I was diagnosed on a Thursday or Friday. That Sunday was the vote on the Affordable Care Act in, in the House of Representatives. And I remember the night before my surgery, sitting there listening on the radio to this vote and, and, and it framed it for me. I mean, in, in a way, this is why I've done healthcare and why I moved my political work to health policy because I could really see the conversation. I saw that conversation in a totally different way, the importance of guaranteed issue, the importance of making sure everybody could have at least basic healthcare access. I remember too, when we wanted to hire you at Ohio University and we're just beginning negotiating with you, the first question you asked me was, how quickly does the health insurance kick in? Is there any kind of a gap between the hire and then insurance becoming active? And for you, that would that would have you made it clear that that would have been a deal breaker. You you needed that insurance from the moment you were hired at Ohio University. I support Medicare for all. I wish that employers weren't the ones who were responsible for for providing healthcare access ultimately. But it's something you learn to ask. I mean, when you hear pre-existing conditions conversations out there you know that that can exclude people for all sorts of reasons, right? I mean, something like testicular cancer is maybe a little bit of a bigger one or any kind of cancer, but you know, you start to see yourself in that light as well. That makes politics very personal. I've really learned that talking about these kinds of things openly is transformative. I mean, we, we've gotten better at this as a society. There's more people talking about mental health and being honest about depression, especially during the pandemic. We've seen a lot of this, but there's also something really amazing about just not stigmatizing our bodies and being able to talk about what's going on with them. I was very lucky to get testicular cancer as opposed to other kinds of cancer. Um, and I was also very lucky that people like Lance Armstrong's story and the, the money that went into research for testicular cancer had preceded my diagnosis. So by the time I came around, it was a fairly easy cancer to deal with as long as you just do the steps. But I have found that there's tremendous value in talking in places like this in very blunt ways, not using too much euphemism. I think it's really important that we be honest about these things and that we actually use our own, my, my privileged experience with testicular cancer to show some leadership. Another story that's very parallel to that is how stigmatized, how very, very stigmatized breast cancer used to be. People wouldn't say the words, people wouldn't, it just wasn't on the cultural radar at all. My maternal grandmother died of breast cancer, and she didn't seek a diagnosis until the cancer was external, that hmm. she had an open sore on her breast. My aunt, her oldest daughter, never even knew what her mother died of until well after she died. Yeah, and there are cancers that have no representatives like that. Right, you, know, you don't hear about rectal cancer, or uterine cancer, or various other kinds of cancers nearly as much. You don't have that famous person to give it a voice. And you know, I don't have the hard data on this, but I'm going to bet that that has something to do with funding as well, and what kind of research we actually undertake, and what kind of research we don't undertake. Giving it a voice, giving it a vocabulary, giving it words that people can start using, it, it makes all the difference. And once it becomes part of public vocabulary, then it rolls off everyone's tongue. People cease to be embarrassed, and it's, it's something that people start to talk about. And you're right. It starts to get funding and attention. There's an identity piece to this. There's this experience that people go through with the word cancer. 
where you know one day you don't have cancer and the next day you're a cancer person and then you're a survivor a language that i i'm using air quotes right the a, a survivor this language that i've really resisted throughout because it's it's a problematic language but i think that that identity can be really harmful too you just see how much like power we've given to this language itself Lots of different cancers do different things. And I think it's really important that we we resist some of the marketing around it. We look at some of the, the slogans around some of the hospitals, the James here in Columbus, right? There's no such thing as a routine cancer. Well, actually, there can be such things as routine cancers. Um, now, I, I get their point, but I think it's important that we kind of just take away the culture and the branding around this stuff so we can actually think about, well, wh- what is the thing that's going on with my body and how can I address it? And also, what are the mental health components of this? And and I found it really hard, even in my very privileged situation, to be able to strip away all of that stuff so I could just deal with the thing. you know. And that's even with good health insurance, great friends, loving family, all of that. Society just kind of like wants to put all this stuff on top of you and, you know, light candles for you and say prayers and, I don't know, uh, inquire about whether you've thought about going to this or that hospital because they're the quote unquote best and all that kind of stuff. And meanwhile, you're just trying to find your way through this. So the less we can, less baggage we can append to cancer treatment, the better it's going to be for patients. Cancer touches on every aspect of health and healthcare, physical health, mental health, health insurance status, which is a phrase unheard of in every other developed country where universal coverage is the norm. Cancer touches on our perception of our own and others' bodies. And language, cancer shapes the everyday words and phrases we use to describe illness, diagnosis, treatment, and their aftermath. Changing the culture and policy that surround cancer would alter not only our collective perception of cancer, but also improve the individual experience of people undergoing cancer diagnoses and treatments. Lifespan is a production of WOUB Public Media. I'm Jackie Wolf, professor of social medicine at Ohio University and the executive producer and host of Lifespan. Adam Rich is our producer, audio engineer, and audio editor. Join us next month when we learn about benign tumors that are especially difficult to treat and how they can affect the quality of life. Mm